emotions we are currently experiencing. I am mentally, spiritually, physically, emotionally, intellectually, and academically developed and acutely aware of the condition of African people throughout the entire world. We don't want fortune, we don't want popularity, we want power. Power. And power comes only from the organized masses. My name is Calb Johannes. I'm an organizer with 1919, uh, as well as the founder. And I'm lucky and honored to be the host for today's conversation on 1919 Radio on the current political crisis in Haiti, in addition to a sharp commentary and historical analysis on the legacies upon legacies of colonialism Haiti has had to endure in pursuit of self-determination. Joining me today as our co-speakers and leaders for this conversation is Dr. Pierre and Dr. Edmonds. Dr. Jamima Pierre is an anthropologist in the Department of African American Studies at UCLA, an organizer with the Black Alliance for Peace, and is also the author of The Predicament of Blackness, Post-Colonial Ghana, and the Politics of Race. Dr. Kevin Edmonds teaches at U of T, specializing in Caribbean political economy, histories of alternative illicit development, foreign intervention, and the region's radical political radical political tradition. He is also an organizer with the Caribbean Solidarity Network here in Toronto and a faculty sponsor for the Caribbean Student Association at U of T. Um, Kevin has also recently successfully defended his dissertation, Legalize It, uh, a comparative study of cannabis economies in St. Vincent and St. Lucia. So big up and congratulations to you, Kevin. Thank you, Kyle. Much appreciated. Of course, anytime. Um, so that was a little bit of a brief intro, but before we get into uh, some of my questions, can you both tell our listeners about who you are and how you're coming to this conversation? And then I'll also add in afterwards. Uh, I'm Jamima Pierre. I, um, I, I teach uh, here at UCLA. My research actually is um, on, the African, on the African continent and um, knowledge production, politics knowledge production and racial formation and white supremacy. Um, you know, this his, the, the histories of that uh, on the African continent. Um, I am Haitian born. And so Haiti has always um, been on my mind and, and my heart. And I travel there all the time. I still have family there. And, and so at my side project, which <laughs> has actually now become my academic project, has always been about uh, writing on Haiti and Haitian politics um, for a while now and really paying attention to imperialism U.S. Um, imperialism um, and writing about Haiti outside of the context of like focusing on like you know the 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 black despots and really more focusing on white supremacy and and U.S. and U.S. and European imperialism. So so that's that's who I am. And 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 over the past I think eight months I've been working with the Black Alliance for Peace, um, and I actually work with them on their um, U.S. out of Africa team, um, um, you know, to oppose the militarization of the African continent through the AFRICOM. And, and it is through that that we, dis, that we then folk decided to have a separate subcommittee on Haiti in particular. So I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much, Caleb, for inviting me and happy to be in conversation with you and Kevin. Caleb, in terms of what I've, I've been doing, uh, mostly from solidarity perspective. So just as someone you know with Caribbean background, Caribbean roots, maybe because of St. Lucian roots that the Creole 
kind of when I would hear Haitians on the TV, I didn't really get it at the time, but you know, when the earthquake had happened or when the, it was mostly the coup in 2004 when that happened and I was at York. Um, and I was like, sounds, it's my family talking, right? Um, so it was always that kind of connection drew me into the history. And as you start learning about Haiti, you learn a lot about the rest of the world, right? So I think, and I always say that to students or anyone that's willing to listen is that if you actually want to understand how the world works, how imperialism works, white supremacy, neocolonialism, you want to name it, food politics, you can look at Haiti and you'll learn so much about how things are deployed there, tweaked, but also exported to the rest of the world. So uh, I've, I've been, uh, you know, drawn to the country, had the opportunity to visit there uh, after the earthquake in 2010. And that really kind of turned a light on for me in terms of connecting with some of the grassroots movements down there. Um, and, and seeing what they have been doing and continue to go through in order to, you know, fulfill these ideals that were put forward, you know, prior to the revolution. But, you know, when they were they were put onto paper uh, and, you know, when the revolution was successful. So uh, doing that in Caribbean Solidarity Network, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're comrades with, with Haiti and the Haitian people uh, trying to get the word about about what's what's going on. Um but that's, that's it. You said that really well, because I think that kind of touches on how I kind of come into this conversation, which is a little bit of a full circle moment for me, because um, in 2017, it was in Kevin's uh, Caribbean Foodways class on Diaspora that I first got introduced to Haiti through a lens that analyzes condition with a sharp focus on race, uh, class, colonialism, um, and global capitalism, like you mentioned. Um, but this was really fundamental for me. Like, honestly, I think, I know we've talked about this a couple of times, but this fundamentally changed who I was and what I wanted to know and set me on my own political journey, which led me to African studies faculty and a number of other Caribbean studies courses, um, as well as just a lifelong commitment, like you said, to learn about and struggle over Haiti. So big thank you for um, bringing that material to your students. Um, I was lucky enough to be one of them um, and also taking part in this conversation outside of school um and thanks to both of you you guys are both excellent examples of what uh, Walter Rodney um so brilliantly describes as grounding you're heaping praise on us but uh you probably don't want it but to show you out as somebody uh that has stood out for a long time and had you know this commitment to radical black internationalist politics that you know that and and turning it into and working with people to make 1919 happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a youth-led uh, media organization and more than that, but, you know, respect to you and, and, you know, all the folks that are involved on your side too, right? So. Yes. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Um, I really do appreciate that. Uh, but let's, let's dive right in with the first question. Um, and that is, uh, Haiti offers one of the clearest examples of how perpetual conflict is a central pillar of imperialism. Can you reference the historical context of imperialism in Haiti and how this agenda has been executed in a myriad of ways from political and economic destabilization to cultural and social directives aimed at, aimed at co-opting Haitian thought and sovereignty? And we can start with you, Dr. Pierre. Uh, okay. Um, well, you know, there was a time, um, Michelle Rolf Trio, the Haitian anthropologist, once said that Haiti is the longest neocolonial experiment in the modern world. And he's absolutely correct. And I think, um, you know, there's this long history from the moment of the revolution 
of, of, of everyone, especially the, the white supremacist European powers trying to um, keep Haiti down. And so if you go from 1800 uh, Saint-Domingue, which actually ended up you know, enriching a lot of people. So the city of Philadelphia, um, uh, much of Philadelphia's early wealth came from the profits of plantations from Saint-Domingue. I don't know if you know about this. And, and even um, you know, as the revolution began and the French were running away, you had um, this guy named Stephen Girard, who, who was the wealthiest man in the US uh, in the late 1800s, in the mid 1800s. Um, they gave him all, they, a lot of the rich planters gave him their, you know, their riches to hold for them. And, and then he, he kept them and moved to the US. And so this is where you have the beginnings of the Philadelphia wealth. So there's that, 1825, you have the indemnity that the French came and forced Haitians, you know, it, you know they surrounded the island with their ships, gunships, and threatened another war if Haiti did not pay reparations, which is uh, in the amount of these days, 21, well, back then, $21 billion when Aristide tried to get it back. Um, and then after that, you have the 18th century carpetbaggers that came in there trying to get the wealth. And then 1915 U.S. occupation on behalf of Citibank, right? Um, and, and taking the gold from Haiti's coffers, putting it on a boat and taking it to New York, <laughs> which is incredible, right? And so you have a 19-year occupation, and then you have the support of Duvalier, um, you know, and the establishment, and the rewriting of the Haitian constitution, which before that said that no foreigner could own land in Haiti. And then, with, you know, um, in the 1915, the U.S. military rewrote Haiti's constitution. Um, the U.S. government rewrote Haiti's constitution that opened it up. And then you have Duvalier, and then you have, you know, coup d'etat after coup d'etat. And then, you know, the biggest, one of the biggest plunder, you know, the plunder is, is what happened after the 19, um, the 2010 earthquake, where you have this, you know, this is, you know, that completely open Haiti up for a complete fleecing um, by the so-called international community. And so, the, and, and so the destabilization that we see in Haiti and the conflict, you know, the, 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 this, uh, the deposing of uh, an elected president and then installation of two presidents in a row. All that is part of creating a destabilized area, but also putting in place people that will open up this, this space for more plunder and, and more control of Haiti's riches and also Haiti's people. So I think, you know, that's, that's where we need to begin. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with absolutely everything that, that you know, just said. I, I would say that, you know, just looking at Haiti, Haiti in a larger context, you know, zooming out in terms of what had been uh, said before about Haiti being the, the longest running neocolonial experiment. And within that, you can see how Haiti has actually made alliances amongst a lot of enemies at time, how it could have brought a lot of colonial powers to, um, you know, they were in stiff competition with each other to come to agreements with each other to put aside their wars you know seven years war hundred year war these petty things that they were fighting in europe apparently uh to deal with haiti and it's the site where a lot of the racism um the neo-colonial use of debt uh isolationist politics uh embargoing uh kidnapping leaders all of this would become institutionalized and then spread around the rest of the world. So if you take it to the continent, like you're going to see other examples, whether it's in Zimbabwe, South Africa, uh, Burkina Faso, um, Libya, you see elements and it's like, that's Haiti, that's Haiti or Cuba, right? That's Haiti or what they're doing with Bolivia or Honduras. And Venezuela. Definitely. And, and Haiti, Haiti was where it started because if you look what Haiti wanted to do, 
they they didn't just say, okay, we're free. That, you know, even if it's imperfect and we're being isolated, what we're going to do, we're going to do our best to spread revolution and freedom amongst the hemisphere, right? So whether that was even, you know, buying people that had been enslaved in the United States to get their freedom to come to Haiti to be free or fighting with the British uh, with the slave owners about a ship to say the crew is free because they touched foot in Haiti, that you can't take them back. They're not your property once any African people or indigenous people come to Haiti. They, they are free. And then extending that to, um, you know, Simon Bolivar, um, who would go and liberate uh, a lot of, you know, what's now Colombia, Venezuela, um, that on the condition that you eliminate slavery, right? That's a huge risk for Haiti to take. You know, they had guns pointed to them and they could have said, you know, we'll just keep to ourselves, right? They didn't. They kept pushing for it and they've always been doing that. And whether that has took the form of a single political leader, it hasn't. It's been a movement, though, that Haiti has always represented, even though sometimes it can get derailed or becomes a bit quieter or less visible to people on the outside. That force has always been there. And I think that's why Haiti means so much to people that are studying the, you know, the radical tradition, the black radical tradition. Um, you, you need to understand Haiti and where it fits from that initial moment up until uh, the present, because that's why I really am glad that, you know, you're talking about this topic today, because so much going on, we're not talking that much about Haiti. I mean, we are, but broadly, we need to talk about what's happening a lot more. I wanted to add quickly, you reminded me, Kevin, is, um, you know, I, I recently was TAing and I had a Greek student who basically reminded me that uh, the, the government of Greece, the only country that gave it support when it came for independence in 1821 was Haiti. And in fact, just last month, uh, their parliament um, passed a thing, a law, it's not a law, but to actually recognize Haiti's support for its independence, which is incredible, right? And to think about this, this is back, back in 1821, or is it 1825, one of those two years, but the Greek government recognizing Haiti for, for its support is, that tells you the, the consequence of this Haitian revolution for the rest of the world. Yeah, I, I didn't even realize that, so, you know, I did. Yeah. In fact, and the other thing is when 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 France lost Haiti, um, one of the things that it did was it went to uh, and I found this out when it when it when it uh, invaded Egypt, um, um, it said that they wanted to create recreate a, a Saint-Domingue um, in Egypt. Um, and this is like late 1800s, right after Napoleon was defeated. And so part of that, like, you don't, you know, they wanted a little Saint-Domingue. And so they, they wanted to recreate that on the African continent. So that tells you just the reverberations of this Haitian revolution. Wow, yeah, I didn't know that as well. Even in um, that anecdote, you hear like what Haiti meant for France, you know, as this prosperous colony, not only enriching France, but like you mentioned, Philadelphia and other, um, uh, like metropole centers in the in the empire. So that's that's really interesting. So thank you both for that. Um, continuing, continuing on, kind of uh, the co-optation. Um, a lot of this work has been led by the Organization of American States, which is a multinational group of nations, including most notably the U.S., Canada, and France, and who have been at the forefront in intervening and destabilizing um, the Haitian quest for self-determination multiple times. Um, what role does the OAS play in the present destabilization of Haiti and Papua Moise? And does either Canada, US, or France have a significant political or economic interest today 
that um, different than what it was in 2004 when they ousted Aristide? Yeah, um, well, I guess the first thing I wanted to say, just in case you, uh, your uh, viewers don't know if what's going on in Haiti is the fact that there's a president, um, so-called, that's refusing to step down after his term has ended. And, um, and, but he was already, he already had no mandate because he was installed by the OAS, the core group and the US. And I think those things are important for us to know. Um, and then before him, the one, the, the, his, uh, his predecessor was also installed, which created this political party. Um, Moise has no mandate um, and he's been in, you know, his mandate ended, he's been ruling by decree since last year, his mandate ended in February. But he also got into power under a lot of protests, under 20% of the population voting. Um, and the same with Martelly, who himself was imposed by Hillary Clinton, who left the Middle East during the Arab, so-called Arab Spring. I call it the African Spring because it's on the African continent, but hey, that's a lot of conversation, other conversation. But so who left the Af African Spring, flew to Haiti, and threatened the sitting president the same treatment that they would do Aristide, which means that they said to the sitting president that we have a plane for you. If you don't accept the OAS changing of the, the election results, um, we have a plane for you that we can fly you out to Africa the way we did um, 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 Aristide. And this is all in the WikiLeaks paper. So you might want to check it out. It's really fascinating. Um, and so, so, so that's what it is. And so this is the importance of OAS, right? The Organization of American States is, a, uh, it's a, is, a, is an organization of 34 states represented supposedly the Western Hemisphere. And, but the US has complete control over it because it provides more than 60% of the funding. And, and it's always been um, long served as a tool of, of US imperialism. Back to Cuba, you know, um, not recognizing the Cuban revolution. Um, it, but it does this through the so-called idea of like election monitoring, supervising, funding, and so on. And so for Haiti, it overturned the election results of that in 2010 which is crazy, right? I mean, if you think about it, they went and they removed ballots, stuffed ballots, removed, didn't count certain, stopped, you know, uh, stopped the, uh, the largest party from voting, from running, this is the Lavalas, which is Aristide's party, and then came in and they, they in terms of being on election monitors, and then for also they provided, the, the US provided the $38 million to run these elections, which they forced on the people. And so they overturned the election, that's what the OAS does. And most recently, so the thing about what's with Moise is that he's refusing to step down. The only way he can get away with that is because he has full support of the United States government along with the core group. And I don't know if people know the core group. The core group is an unelected group um, convened by, by the UN Security Council in 2004 once they invaded Haiti and established this occupation. And, and the group has, you know, members that we don't even know. It's member states, Brazil, which, is, which we need to talk about, Canada, France, Germany, Spain, the US, the European Union, the OAS, and the United Nations. These are the members of the core group, which is an all white group. If you look online, they're the ones that actually meet and decide what happens in Haiti. And so, so the core group, which includes the Canadian government, the US government, and so on, the OAS, they all do that decision. And so what that tells us, then this is like a major form of destabilization, a major usurpation of sovereignty of, 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 of Haiti. And, and, and this is where actually our action should be targeted, right? Towards these groups who are meddling and doing everything they can 
um, to, to, to stop Haiti um, from, um, from, from asserting its sovereignty. Oh, I, I don't really have much to add aside from uh, the fact that Canada does play uh, a big role in the OAS. And, and I think this is how uh, U.S. and Canadian imperialism in the hemisphere can kind of get, um, it's like a shadow puppet or a ventriloquist, right? That, you know, they, it's like look at the puppet and not the person that's, that's operating it. So like the OAS will be used as a mouthpiece to, to give policy pronouncements. And then the U.S. will be like, oh, yeah, we like that. We're going to follow with that. That sounds good. When the U.S. had been feeding them those lines the whole time, right? So um, if you look back, at, as Jamima pointed out, the, the numerous times from 2010, but even going back past that, like it goes back, you know, the, the Cuba expulsion and non-recognition of the revolution and uh, any kind of, whether it goes from progressive to radical um, political experiment they've been against, um, there's, there's never been any kind of concession given to them. It's always been, you know, foot on the pedal um, when it comes to, you know, trying to wipe out or isolate or discredit or defund um, these, these kinds of movements. Because, uh, again, you can look at Bolivia, what happened with the counting of the ballots too early when it was with uh, uh, evil, right? And then now with, with Moise in, in Haiti, it's like you don't have to have, you know, parliamentary elections. You don't have, you can do whatever you want, basically. And we're going to extend your term by another year. That's the OAS saying that. They have no grounds to actually say that. That's something that's for domestication politics to, to sort out amongst themselves. And it's quite clear the legal precedent with that. Because they, you see the hypocrisy there is that they're saying it's a technical thing they're arguing about when the president should step down or end their term. Um, and Moyes was supposed to be gone in February, right? Um, and the OAS is saying, well, according to our interpretation, it's like if there's a historical precedent with Aristide that was set, that even when he was gone for, I think, three-ish years, that they said, it doesn't matter. You don't get time back. You know, you did eight months as president. We overthrew you. And I think it was September. And then didn't get back for another three years. Yes. And so he served a year and a bit, or whatever the math is with that. He didn't get to extend his term, Right. So there's no consistency on their behalf. It's just whatever fits at the time and suits their their, their political kind of agenda for, for Haiti. So going to your point, if things have changed, um, not at all. And their inconsistency is what's been the most consistent when it comes to dealing with Haiti and how it works. Because there's one set of rules with Aristide or with even with Celestin when he was there or um, uh, Neptune or whoever is there, doesn't matter. Um, they, they have two sets of rules that they, they play by. So they go by, you know, follow the book, have elections when it's their, their opposition, not like their political opposition in terms of the movement and who's in power versus their lackeys that, you know, they have a lot of um, leeway with them, right? Yeah, and the consistency is, you know, like imperialism and white supremacy, right? Because part of it is, um, Louis Amagro is, is one of the most right-wing um, secretary generals of the OAS and you know it, it people say you know he was flown in on a private plane to meet with Moise um, um, uh, right before February 7th and then came out so you can go on Twitter and you can see when the statements come out right so it's like I just met with Moise and he's gonna hold the elections we're gonna do this referendum because that's the other thing that's happening Moise is trying to rewrite the constitution which is um, which the U.S. is funding and supporting and well, what it says is the Constitution gives them, you know, Haitian presidents cannot run for more than one term because we're trying to stave off the long history of dictatorship. 
So he's trying to rewrite that so he can run another term, but also give himself complete immunity, uh, um, immunity, but also increase the power of those of us in the diaspora to have a say in Haiti, which is actually ridiculous. You know, I'm in the diaspora. I don't want to be able to have that much power, but then that would allow them to control Haiti from outside, right? So the US is completely behind that. The UN, who we really need to talk about as well, right? Because um, that's an occupation. We're an occupied country, right? And so, um, so the Amagro is, 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 He's been horrible. He's been horrible towards Bolivia, you know, with, with what happened in Bolivia. He was definitely behind that. And I think we need to hold all these people accountable um, um, for what they've been doing um, in, in, in Haiti. Um, and it's not just about Moise. It's about, you know, Canada, the U.S., and Luis Amagro in particular, I think. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, there's so much there, and I think we're going to get to talk a lot about it as well. So thank you both for um, shedding light on a little bit of the factors and the context uh, and commenting on what's going on right now. Um, in, juxtap in juxtaposition to the imperial war that has been waged on Haiti, uh, Haiti has been a site, uh, a site and symbol of resistance movements and revolution from its inception as the first independent Black republic. Presently, Moise, as well as the Haitian elite, have benefited from the army of gangs and rogue police officers to fuel proxy conflicts within Haiti that are infiltrating and setting a counter movement against the popular organizing for an anti-imperialist and pro-democracy struggle, which we've always seen in Haiti. Um, can you expand on this counter-revolution more and how it's become such a popular tactic of, of manipulation, not just in Haiti, but also, of course, across the continent and other places? Um, well, I, I, first of all, we have to know who the Haitian elite are, the, you know, so the Haitian elite is a group of very light skin and white, mostly from um, the Levantine nations and from France and from Italy. So the largest, you know, some of the families are, you know, the Bigios, the Brents, you know, um, um, keep, keep, you know, uh, are, are paid, okay. the Syrian, um, they're, they're white elite, you know, it's, it's fascinating, right? And they're like about 10 families that own the ports, that own all the major infrastructure um, 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 in, in a lot of land in Haiti. Um, in fact, you know, one of the things that Moise did to, to pacify some of the elite was um, one family in particular was giving them 27,000 acres of land in the middle of the country so that they can get, so give Coca-Cola a contract to get 25,000 acres, 27,000 acres in the middle of the country to grow stevia, the sweetener for their Coke, right? And, and then gave $25 million to be a paid family as if they needed more in order to run this plantation that they're trying to grow for Coca-Cola. So the elite is, 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 is fascinating. The elite has always been, I mean, there's a dark skin elite in the North and agrarian elite, which I think has been surpassed by the new elite, which is like a new elite, which is like these foreign born, um, you know, there are generations now, but they're like a white elite um, in Haiti that own everything. And the elite actually really did had a come up after the earthquake. Because what happened is, you know, a lot of the times they were land rich and cash poor, and they've been there for a long time. What the earthquake it was, you know, what Naomi Klein calls, what do you, what do you call that? Um, disaster. Disaster capitalism. Disaster capitalism. Well, when you say Haiti open for business, Bill Clinton came in, you know, hooked up the elite because, you know, they got money to build ports, money to build hotels, and so on and so forth. So that's, that's the group. And the elite have always been able to import um, um, 
arms, you know, equipment and arm very poor gangs, right? To, to go do its dirty business, right? So what's happened, but the other thing that happened in Haiti um, is under Aristide, the military was dissolved. And the military was dissolved because we, you know, when he came back, when he came back the second time after the first coup d'etat, because the military was not trustworthy, right? The military was infiltrated. And we know this, right? The US government does this all the time, right? Um, the military was infiltrated. And, and so we, they dissolved the military. Once they got rid of Aristide, if you look at the WikiLeaks papers, one of the things that the US and the UN did was basically try to reintegrate the military, these former rogue people into the Haitian National Police. And then the other thing they did was basically allow Martelly, you know, to re reignite the military. So now there's a military again, after the military had actually been um, um, disbanded. And so what you have then is the US and the UN supplying that military because there's no money. All the money comes from, you know, the UN and the US. In fact, I remember when, um, you know, somebody sent me a list when the UN supposedly, you know, lowered its numbers and left a lot of the military people left, um, you know, turning over to the Haitian government. It's the same way that the US government, you know, through the 1033 program, gives military equipment to the local police. Well, they did the same thing to Haitian police. So, you, you know, they gave ammunition, tear gas, all that stuff that the UN had. They turned it over. Not only that, in the summer, there are all these, um, all these military, these tanks and all this stuff that were imported into the country for the, you know, by Trump, sent by Trump for the Haitian government. In addition to that, the elite control the ports, right? All the major ports. So I don't know, if there, there's every once in a while, it'll break the mainstream news that there are like tons of guns caught, you know, at the ports in Haiti. And that's the elite controlling the guns. Cause you see all these young boys who are like 18, 19 carrying these like massive machine guns. And you're like, where's all this coming from? It is part of this, you know, this, this process of counter, what you call it, it's true, a counter revolution of trying to create, wreak havoc within the country in order to actually stop, you know, the, the, the flow of protest against imperialism. And so that's really what's happening in Haiti. And it's, and it's really, um, you know, we see it everywhere. Right? We see it on the African continent, especially these days, right? You know, especially once NATO and the U.S. took down Gaddafi, right? Like, you know, the infiltration of arms and, 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 and pitting one group against another. And it's working perfectly in Haiti in the sense that it is creating, it's creating fear. It's creating um, um, a lot of violence, but they're targeting very specific people. And we have to like really be uh, aware that this is really a manufactured violence, right? That's happening. Yeah, so what, what I would just add in terms of that, like the history with, with paramilitaries or gangs in Haiti, uh, it goes back to, you know, the Duvaliers, uh, the, the Makuts terrorizing right. people, you know, who, whoever was in opposition or perceived to be in opposition, uh, they would, they would, you know, make sure that either you didn't speak or if you did speak, you wouldn't speak for long, right? Either you'd be killed, put in prison, or you'd go into exile or tortured, right? So, they, and, and the sad thing about that is that it worked to a degree because eventually the dictatorship fell. So it doesn't mean that you can silence everybody, right? Um, but what, what we're seeing now is the use of the gang and the understanding that having both formal ways to get around people with politics and the stalling, the OAS on your side, uh, another way to get people to stop coming out in the streets is by just threatening them with violence and not just threatening, following through with those threats of violence. And as Jamila pointed out, it's targeted. It's not like you just there's this gang warfare all across the, the capital, right? 
in this in this sense or in this concentration that is on targeted communities that have been these long time um, strongholds for opposition. Whether that means in a sense like during the Lavalas period of Aristide that they were Lavalas communities, but now they were just like anti-Martelli, anti-Moise uh, communities where they have a tough time, you know, enforcing their the rule their rule there. They don't get a lot of popular support there, right? So they're looked at as the enemies. And that's where a lot of these gang, gang uh, wars have taken place. It's to take out people that are organizing in the communities, it's to take out a lot of people that would be rallying these communities to come out in the streets. Like it was uh, the end of March, like there were a couple of rallies that were held that it was these communities where they were pulling people out. And the, the result is that once they see that you're bringing people out from La Saline or you're bringing people out from um, the other one that I have there. Uh, Belair. Yeah, in particular, those communities get attacked, right? And we saw that at the end of March, beginning of this month, that both the police and uh, gang activity in those communities resulted in a lot of life. Like those things aren't disconnected, right? But at least from the president, you can say, that's not me. I don't know what's going on. We've lost some control. So on, on the other side of things, if we look how Aristide's so-called connection with the gangs or the chimeras and you know, the, particularly in his second term, he couldn't escape any of that. The accusations were so heavy, so consistent, saying that he has this private army of people to terrorize and, you know, uh, put tires around people's necks and do all this kind of stuff. What's happening now in Haiti is like exponential that you have this alliance and you have former police officers that are openly admitting people that are responsible for massacres that are wanted, even been targeted by the U.S. and said, hey, you know, there, there's these three figures in um, what's his name Jimmy. The last name is uh, Barbie Cher, Cherizier. Cherizier. Yeah. yeah. Openly going around and admitting that yeah, we were responsible for killing seventy to eighty people in La Saline, you know, because we wanted to terrorize that community to you know enforce uh, the political um, voice of the government to, to make sure that they followed suit and didn't go out and protest. Because the other thing that can kind of get lost is that. The protests that are happening now happened last year, the year before. It was from when Moyes basically came into power. He had about a year where people were still pissed off. But then in 2018, things really kicked off when they had the got rid of the fuel subsidies, right? And since then, he's been using the gangs in a very strategic way uh, to try and silence the opposition, right? And then obviously COVID hits and stuff like that, that things kind of calmed down. But he's been reorganizing his forces and having these alliances between gangs. It's not... In like it's not coincidental, it's not an accident that this is happening, right? This is another way to, to control because there was a thing before where Martelli and even uh, Moyes were not paying the, the police, right? But they were they were going on strike about, you know, we're not receiving our pay, but the gangs get paid, right? And they're also less accountable to, you know, these corruption investigations or things that are gonna follow. And you do have some overlap between the two, but that's been allowed to happen because the whole time that there was this, the, the UN had been in Haiti. There were calls, you know, we don't, occupation is illegitimate, but saying if you are here to stabilize, which meant the UN supporting uh, the assassination of community organizers, which also fits into this in like a longer term perspective about how you do it formally and informally. Um, you try to control the, the popular movement in Haiti, right? But you're not taking out necessarily political party, but it's like the grassroots activist wing whether they, they affiliate with a party or not, they could be organizing in the community for water or access to electricity or healthcare, things like that. 
But by doing that, you're also against the state for the most part, because they're not, they're not helping you with those things. They're leaving you alone. Despite them getting money, they're funneling it to get arms in people's hands or do these uh, pet projects like building sweatshops in the north coast of the island next to the Dominican where there was no earthquake damage, right? This is a way to, to kind of uh, use violence to maintain control. And it's successful, but it's also not because you see there's these breaks between it. And what's really terrifying is that the only way to really go against it is to fight fire with fire and the amount of loss that will lead to in terms of people's lives, which is really scary, but it seems that's where it's at because there's not there's no talk of holding our Moise accountable for what, what's happening right now. Now, and I, you're absolutely right. And, and I do want to say uh, the gang thing has always been used in, in a particular, I mean, now it's really is, is, is terrible, right? In the sense of having pitting gangs against each other. But the gang thing was used, you know, the UN, when it first got there, you know, um, it was Cite Soleil and Bel Air, right? It, where um, they used this idea of like these gangs terrorizing people in order to raid four towns where Aristide supporters were. So there, there's a one thing that happened in 2006 where 1,400 ministers, um, 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 soldiers, ministers, was the UN occupation, um, you know, fired 22,000 bullets towards this one tiny, really enclosed poor area of, of Bel Air um, and, and, and killed a bunch of people, right? In, in, so supposedly in, in search for gangs and gang leaders, right? So. So they've always used the gang in a particular way, um, um, you know, to demonize Haitians and to make Haitian people seem like, you know, they're, you know, they're uh, uh, heartless and cruel and so on. But this time, the fact that the, pres the city president that's supported by the U.S., supposed president, I call him the dictator in the making, right? Um, um, that, you know, now he's deploying the gangs in particular ways, um, it also opens up the space for them to go in. But I, I, I actually think it's opening up the space for another invasion. I mean, that's really what's happening. The, the point is that there are these, it, it's, they're arming different gangs. The, 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 you know, the police is paying gangs. And then what's, what's gonna happen is like, oh, Haiti's too destable. You know, Haiti's a mess. We need to go in and, and send more, more troops. And, and, and that opens up again, Haiti to, to occupation. Right, right. Thank you. Thank you both. I think, uh, Dr. Pierre, you really touched on what Kevin said earlier, like the inconsistencies. And before it was kind of used as a tool of uh, uh, like demonization. And now it's used as a tool of like proxy conflict. And right. So it's a constant, it's a constant agenda that fuels just the total domination um, of people and land, like Fanon said, um, which is what colonialism tries to do. Um, but concerning, but continuing on, um, as a result of a thriving neoliberal system of governance that creates hegemony through the deployment of diverse, a, a diverse array of political instruments and tools led by NGOs, organizations such as the UN, World Bank, uh, IMF, USAID, among others. Um, as a result of this, global South countries experience colonialism in a myriad of different ways. Can you expand on some of the different ways colonialism manifests in Haitian material Haitian material realities such as food security, um, public health, land degradation, uh, climate change and climate disaster and disaster capitalism, which we kind of touched on a little bit already. All the, all the things that you mentioned, they have a, a long and unfortunate history uh, within Haiti. And you can look at it, you could put it up like a timeline if we could do that, if I had a, a way to do that right now. 
Um, you can look at how these controls have been instituted at different times in different ways, but with this, trying to get the same result, right, which is the extraction of wealth from, from Haiti, but also to limit that influence. Like I said, that longstanding fear of an independent, sovereign, self-determined Black Haiti um, from basically being able to get itself on its feet. And as an example to the rest of the people um, around the world, within the United States, within Canada, it's not just a global South thing, it's, a, it's across the board. Um, but, but you can look at how it's changed from, you know, full out invasion, Napoleon sending the armies, that's a traditional thing that, you know, imperialists would do. And then they switch it up that they do the, the trade embargo, right? And then they do the debt. Then that takes us into, you know, the early 20th century. And then there's another occupation that Jimmy had, had mentioned, right? And then you rewrite the constitution and then you install a dictator. And then after that breaks down, you have elections for a brief moment and then you have a coup. But what was really big with that coup and what followed as well, particularly with the second one was the use of media, right? To be able to legitimize or delegitimize a presidency and legitimize an intervention. So in the case of Aristide in 2004 in particular, it was about humanitarian intervention. That this became a way for the UN and for Canada, the United States and France to intervene to address humanitarian concerns. Whether there's humanitarian concerns across the board happening in Haiti across administration and stuff like that's not the concern. It's who's doing it and when and what we can get out of it. So that's when you start seeing the demonization of Aristide because gangs existed before Aristide, gangs existed after Aristide. Um, and, and like a lot of places, like you talk about the global South, but we can look at places where gangs emerged out of very ordinary problems that people face in the community. Like in, I was just reading stuff before about in, in, in Bel Air and some of the earlier gangs, the studies on them, it was people trying to collect tolls from um, basically trucks or taxis or, or passenger vehicles going back and forth because they didn't have access to basic goods or certain, not even goods, services in their community. So they would have a small toll on people going back and forth. Obviously that gets organized. This is very political science Charles Tilly, you know, the warlords building up the, the state, right? Private state. Um, then it evolves, right? And it's the same thing. Like in, you look at in, in Jamaica, similar things were happening with gangs, how they end up getting politicized, right? They get used by politicians. It's not that they politicians made the gangs, but they figure out how to use them to their advantage. So that's another thing that kind of irregular warfare that they like to give us stupid name to in, in political science, they'll call it these kinds of things, where it's just like violence through another means, it's extortion through another means, it's political control by other means. Um, but you can't hold a gang accountable the same way you can as a politician, because you can easily just kill the gangster, right? To do that with the politician, I mean, you can do it. In some cases it happens, but there's a lot more attention that's get brought to you. These are people that are disposable, right? No matter how much loyalty you profess to them, how much secrets they know, they, they can get wiped out. And that's something that um, we, we see happening in Haiti, but talking about food security, any of this stuff, right? Like Haiti was going to, the, the popular movement in 2008, I believe, when there was um, protests about the rising food prices in Haiti, what ends up happening? It's the, it's minister, the, the United Nations that were there that violently tamped down on that, right? And this is stuff that you see happening throughout the world that same year. Um, 
things that were happening with the Arab Spring, talking about the price of flour in Egypt and stuff like that, right? You can see these, Haiti's like a microcosm of a lot of these problems that happen in other places. It's just how you deal with that problem, right? So maybe they're saying, okay, we don't want to spend so much money on the military. We're going to control um, and run the state through NGOs. But if that doesn't work, we're fine to send in the military. It just won't be Haitian. It will be the United Nations that, that's doing it, right? And there, there's, there's a whole number of different ways that Haiti has been used in order to legitimize this like understanding of what humanitarian intervention should entail and when it can be deployed. And again, the inconsistencies there, because people have been talking about, you could have the UN, when the UN was sent, or the minister was sent to um, Haiti in 2004, the same argument, someone, I forget who made it, but they said that if we're using this basis of insecurity and violence in Haiti as the reason why we need to intervene and send an occupying military force to Haiti, you have an occupying force in Washington, D.C. You would have one in Dade County. You have one all across. So like, where are you getting this from? And that's that kind of fear of, you know, and, and WikiLeaks exposed it, of a populist anti-market left. I think that was what they termed it. It's just saying that, Haitians should have control of their own economy. And if that means we have to use NGOs or we have to use a foreign occupying army to do it, or we're going to use sanctions or we're going to use the media to demonize them or anything that we can do, we're going to try and do it so that we can make it seem like we're helping no matter what we do. We send the UN, we're helping. We're starving you, we're helping. We're giving you food aid, we're helping now. We're decimating your farmers, we're helping. Right. So they're always able to take this kind of like supposedly, I mean, you can see through the bullshit, but it's like this kind of like moral high ground where you're helping. Right. Whereas they're never taking from Haiti. And that's one of the things I think a lot of people kind of get confused about what's happening with Haiti because they're like, OK, they're not growing sugar anymore. You know, they don't have oil. So what's happening? There's that example of Haiti. But then there's also, you know, very much there's a lot of mineral resources that's there. There's a lot of labor power. There's a lot of disgusting studies that have come out from, uh, you mentioned the USAID, about this, this new thing that we always talk about comparative advantage in economics, right? That this is a way that countries will build themselves up. You're going to embrace your comparative advantage, whether you have oil, sugar, um, lithium, whatever it is. The, what they rewrote for Haiti was that poverty can be the comparative advantage of Haiti, that it can be where the sweatshops can consolidate again after the earthquake because poverty will allow them to actually make money because they'll sell their labor for so cheap. Mexico can't compete. Honduras can't compete. The Dominican Republic can't compete. Guatemala can't compete. And it's so close to the U.S. That was the idea that they've had. So they're trying to bring, you know, jobs back from China, right? And their, their geopolitical enemies, right? And put it in Haiti. But for the most part, it's not working. But you just see like a lot of these um, ideas and theories, they're thought through, but they use Haiti as this laboratory for, for it to go through. And it gets deployed to other places, but um, that's why Haitian history is so important or understanding Haitian politics, because you'll see trends or you'll see patterns or policies emerging from there and deployed elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, there's, there's so much going on. Thank you, Kevin, because there's so much. And I do, I did want to uh, start with, with your point about the UN um, invasion of, of Haiti in 2004, because there is a distinct difference of sending a UN so-called peacekeeping mission uh, under chapter six versus chapter seven. And one of the key things is that they sent 
the UN under chapter seven, which meant that it did not need the permission of the Haitian state to use force and to do whatever the hell it wanted, right? And so let's think about what that means. It means that this is, an, this is a, a foreign occupation, this is colonialism. It, when you can be in a country and you have no say to, the, to, to what happens in the country, and, and which is the why when we had, when they brought cholera, right? So let's talk about the UN dumping their dirty water, their shit water into the main water source in the middle of Haiti, right? They dumped feces and water, you know, dirty water um, in the, the main river source, which then gave, which is like, you know, cholera is a dirty disease, right? So then it fits the thing of like Haitians being dirty because, you know, you have cholera, you know, you cannot control your, 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 your internal movements and people die from that, right? And so it killed like 30,000 people and sickened almost a million, right? The UN never really apologized, never compensated Haiti. And they said they didn't have to because that's not their, you know, they, you know, they don't, they don't owe the Haitian people that. So that's, that's, you know, thinking about, you know, climate disaster health, you know, what this occupation means for people, right? And just how just genocidal it is, right? In, in, in that particular way. But then we can also go back to the Haitian pigs, right? So in 1981, for example, you know, um, uh, there was, you know, the, 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 there's a Creole pig in the Caribbean, right? It's a black pig, right? And it can, it can survive throughout the island, you know, and, and, and that was what really was saving the farmers, you know, it could, you know, it doesn't need a lot of uh, a support it doesn't need like you know it can survive off of whatever and that was the main thing and so there you know some of the pig stocks were uh, infected by um what they call the so-called you know they always call it african swine flu right right and so and so reagan was like well you know you guys with the hell and this is where you have these so-called international institutions all working together right so the oas the 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 the, the u.s government come together through the USAID and they're like, you guys have to kill all your pigs. So they slaughtered hundreds of thousands of pigs and replaced them with what? A white pig, right? Coming from the US. I mean, the symbolism is just ridiculous, right? And this white pig was so weak that they required a lot more food, a lot more treatment, a lot more medicine. And so where they, even the, the farmers were saying, right, these pigs eat better than we do, right? And they need more, you know, more help, right? And so the farmers were, fairly compensated, right, for that. And then you have rice, right? So in 1987, and Bill Clinton apologized for this. So what, what are your apologies when you've already decimated the agricultural agriculture of the country? And so the other way that they got to the farmers were, you know, Haiti produced its own food. It had, you know, it's had its own rice, its clothing and so on. But in 1986, right after Duvalier left, the military junta was supported by the IMF in a loan in return for killing subs killing um tariffs on imports shifting uh, haitian manufacturing uh, haitian agriculture to exports and basically opening up the port to to us um, um foreign goods so rice became you know became this thing at the same time the, the us was giving its rice farmers it's arkansas and this is clinton right um major subsidies so that they can sell the rice below market value Haitian does Haitian government does not allow, you know does not have tariffs so then they flooded the Haitian uh, the countryside the country with American rice they called it Miami rice in Haiti because it was being shipped from Miami so by then within ten years seventy five percent of local rice production was done right so we have to think about how these the USAID the IMF the World Bank 
the U.S. government, the OAS, they all work together, right? Um, and even through a, a, a military junta, you know, the IMF is still giving money. If you look at the Haitian now, if you look at the Haitian government's budget, the money comes from the IMF, right? They're still getting money. And, and these people are making money because the International Development Bank just decided that, you know, $61 million for, cholera, I mean, for uh, COVID in Haiti. Haiti does not have a lot of COVID, right? There's not a lot, there's not a lot of COVID cases. But then you're like, so where, did the, where does that $61 million go, right? You know, it's like, who's getting this money? There's money that's being said that's spent on Haiti and none of it goes to the people, right? Mm-hmm. And so part of that, and the other thing I just saw just yesterday that Haiti has received zero COVID vaccines. But at the same time, they've received arms, they've received supplies, they've received, you know, visits from the State Department or, you know, the U.S. government sent Colombian police to, to go train Haitian police, you know, recently. So they're receiving all kinds of stuff to foment violence, but nothing to help with COVID, right? Not one vaccine has been sent to Haiti. So that tells you what, you know, what's, you know, this is a, this is a neo-colonial, I, I don't even know if it's a neo-colonial, it's a colonial situation. Something, something I just add, because uh, a lot of times they'll talk about there's no resources for, for Haiti when it comes to public infrastructure. So water, even telecommunications, uh, electricity, those kinds of things. Uh, Minister, on average, was funded a, close to a billion dollars a year. So that was 2017 they left, right? So that would have been over $10 billion that could have gone because they had the money, came from somewhere, right? that they could have given to, to Haiti to build these kinds of things. And there were proposals that were made by like the Cubans after the, the earthquake, where they said that we can build a primary healthcare system across the island. And they said they costed it. It was like just under $2 billion. Right? It's not hospitals everywhere, but primary clinics and to help with hospitals, trainings, those kinds of things. And they also costed it after the, the UN admitted guilt for cholera but then just said so what are you going to do about it um i think it was like for the whole island for the dominican side and haitian side again it was like 1.6 billion dollars for the entire island to get sanitation and clean water infrastructure put in place but yet you have 10 billion dollars to have uruguayan brazilian sri lankan nepalese soldiers come there shoot at students that are protesting introduce cholera which the strain was from nepal nepal how many Haitians were traveling to Nepal and back to a small village in Nepal to catch a string, right? But you know what they did build was prisons. The Canadian government built a prison in Haiti. Um, The U.S. government built two prisons right after the earthquake. The things they built in Haiti were prisons and hotels, right? So what does that tell you? (laughs) Yeah. It's it's the signs of the very unequal societies, right? They they say you want to get rich, you invest in the dollar store and luxury brands, right? Because everyone in the middle is going to be getting screwed. So uh, it's the same same thing in Haiti. You got prisons, you got hotels. So how, what's happening here, right? That they're setting up the infrastructure for the continued pillaging of Haiti, but those people will have more comfortable conditions, right? That they're going to be staying at five-star hotels and stuff like that now. I don't know if they're going to do that now because you can do all your pilfering from Zoom, apparently. You don't right. need person, so, you know. Right, right. Um, thank you. Thank you both. I think... There's so many things you guys touched on that really emphasize imperial as well as like um, political domination, but this has real material effects. And there are millions of people in Haiti who feel the effects of a UN 
World Bank, IMF, um, US-led occupation. So thank you. I think that was just, that was really good. For the next one then, we'll go to, um, not only has the Haitian Revolution um, and history been completely erased by Western institutions and, curric and curriculums, but imperialist media corporations in these Western countries have participated in the demonization and censorship of Haitian popular struggle for freedom and self-determination. Um, can you expand upon how successful and insidious the cultural warfare and systems of propaganda waged against Haiti's quest for self-determination has been? Sure. So uh, it's a big question. You're coming with them, probably. Remember. Very good questions, by the way. <laughs> but, but yeah, when, when, when we think about how history is told to us, uh, we, we need to be very careful about how we're taking it in. Because even if we were to look at something like liberal democracy, I saw, I'm not taking credit for this. I saw something like that yesterday where they were talking about how we even learn about liberal democracy. Anything that's good about it came through like violent, illegal struggle, right? And then we are like, we'll look at that and say, okay, this is how we got to where we are now. So everything's perfect. So if people are protesting in the streets now, no more. No more of this protest, no more of this struggle that's gonna happen, right? So we're told that even liberal democracy, how we have it now is very peaceful and organized and through certain means and institutions to, to have what we have now, right? And I'm, I'm not a fan of it, I'm not defending it. But what I'm saying is that if you look at the Haitian revolution then, that becomes something that they don't even wanna begin speaking about, right? Because then it's like, what happened? That the revolution was successful, you had the first instance where it was uh, African peoples that had beat uh, a colonial power. They had their own republic. They beat Napoleon's army, which we forget at that time was busy in conquering the rest of Europe, going right. uh, <laughs> eastward, right? And then they come to Haiti, and then people that had their machetes finished them, right? That they couldn't, they couldn't get a hold there. Even if they're trying to invade from the Dominican Republic, you know, they made alliances with the United States, with France, or not with France, with, with England. Um, stuff that you never see happen. The Haitian people were able to beat them. Um, so that lesson, just in and of itself, if the revolution just stopped there, 1804, nothing else happened. That lesson for people about taking history and matters into your own hands to free yourself, it's something that they don't want people to get, that you need to be like what happened with the rest, not the rest, but most of the Caribbean, that your independence is granted to you, where you have a nice ceremony, you change over the flags, you know, and the queen does a little thing in her, um, you know, convertible, and all your flags look like Scottish flags and stuff like that. Like, it's no, no big difference. Um, but the reality, the material reality, the economic connections don't change. What Haiti did is they severed those ties. Um, and they've been punished for that, obviously. Like when people talk about what the revolution um, has achieved since, you take the good parts, but the bad parts, the bad parts are not on the Haitians. That's on the international community and how they received the Haitians. They didn't want to receive them. The good things that they couldn't contain was that example about self-determination, fighting white supremacy, fighting colonialism, spreading freedom to other people. When people are like, okay, they could do it then. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have news telling each other what's happening they didn't have cell phones they organized and built networks like if you start studying the haitian revolution it's fascinating how they were able to coordinate across the island have the maroons with the militaries you know the more formal militaries um a lot of women were involved in in, in the, i think it was up to at least one third were fighting with women 
um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of positives and negatives out of, you know, the constitution that emerged, but they said one of the most important things is that Haiti is going to be a sovereign black land and that you're not going to allow foreign investment to come in because that's a way that you can recolonize. It, right. So there's so many things just within that initial moment that it's like Haiti knew what was up. What was going to happen in Jamaica in 1962 is that you allow the foreign investment it never goes away. You can have your flag, you can have your national anthem, you can have Aki and Saltfish, and you can have the John Crow as your bird or whatever. But when it comes to what actually matters, the land and the money is ours. It's not yours. We can call the shots whenever we want, right? And you see similar things happen with the United States, with Cuba, like the Platt Amendment and stuff. Like you can have your independence, but when it actually comes to something that matters, we will intervene militarily to do it. Haiti had set that precedent for all of the other uh, countries where they're very weary about it. So it's like Haiti, Haiti took the whole piece of the pie, right? And that's the, normally what you're supposed to get is the crumbs. So that scared all of the, you know, colonial powers afterwards and tried to figure out new ways to engineer control over uh, their colonies because they didn't want another Haiti to happen, right? And you see like the, the Egypt example is, is, you know, incredible. And I'm, I'm thinking in my head like about when the F French went to like, uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, allowed those places, they're probably trying to do the same thing. I wonder if that was something in their head because it was so profitable to them, even though it was so brutal for everyone else that they, they just couldn't imagine it not existing anymore, right? And I think that's really powerful because that's, that's what people were able to do is to take that control back, right? Yeah. No, yeah, that's, that's very true. And I, you know, there's something to be said about Napoleon, you know, saying this was not about money. This was about like not letting these blacks um, have power. And he, he came out and he said that, uh, you know, and thank you for covering all that because I think the other part though is also, there are two things I think that's work to demonize Haiti and to make people um, um, and dehumanize Haitians, right? There's Vodou, right? Um, which is always, you know, black magic. And we see it in US propaganda, like the serpent and the rainbow, if you remember that. And, and I just remember like even reading through the WikiLeaks files when the Vatican was against Aristide talking about, you know, how he's not a real Catholic priest and how, you know, the, the, you know these people are, you know, like, you know, they're satanic and voodoo. And the Vatican's talking about voodoo, like this voodoo country, right? Like this idea of demonizing African religions, by the way, that is a voodoo flag behind me. Um, you know, talking about uh, African religions um, as if something that's, you know, that's so, so backwards and, and demon, you know, and, 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 and like they're, you, you, you worshiping demons, that it is a way to link Black people with, uh, with, with everything that's bad and, and whatever. So Vodou has always been used against Haiti and also by only, but also by the Catholic Church and all or, um, early leaders who are embarrassed um, by the fact that these Haitians, um, um, you know, practice African religion, including other countries in the Caribbean, who always still have this stereotype of Haitians as these voodoo, you know, these these super black um, um, practicing these these um, satanic religions. So there's that. But more recently, I think what's what's really shifted the discourse around Haiti is the fact that the U.S. has gotten away with demonizing Aristide um, as the first, you know, um, elected. Um, you know, man of the people, right? You know, the, the, the most popular um, um, uh, figure in Haitian history in a long time. Um, and also with the largest party of the, of the poor people. And, and I don't know if you remember this, Kevin, but it was like, you know, after the first coup d'etat, which was backed by the CIA, 
there are all these stories in the news, the U.S. newspapers about how Eresi is crazy. He has mental illness. Um, he's doing all this, and he's you know telling people to go and burn tires. And he was in charge. He was like running gangs. So there are all these stories you can look back in the ninety, you know, like 92, 93, All these stories about how crazy Aristide is. How he's like lost his mind. And so the demonization of Aristide was so powerful that it actually impacted the way that the Asian diaspora sees Aristide, right? The, a lot of people, a lot of US leftists, North American leftists turned on Aristide, buying into this demonization, all the, the propaganda war against this one man, right? So, and that to me was the most, um, that's the most effective form of propaganda against Haitian, um, um, you know, uh, propaganda against uh, the struggle for freedom and self-determination because you take this one person and his party and you turn him into this evil monster and then you you link him to like Duvalier and make it seem like he's similar to a Duvalier or even to Martelly and we still hear a lot of this stuff among some of the left the, the older generation um, including the Haitian left who, who were really, who bought into this demonization and some of them supported the 2004 coup d'etat. And I, and I really wanna push back against that. And, and the Haitian elite, the Haitian intellectual elite as well, who went after, including Raoul Peck, who turned on Aristide, right? Because there's the middle-class elite who never felt comfortable with this poor preacher and his support among the really poor. And so there's an intellectual elite, there's an elite elite, they all were part of these, you know, they all bought into this demonization and, and, and they were embarrassed by Aristide, right? Embarrassed by these poor people. The man who said, you know, we're gonna be poor, but we're gonna live with dignity, right? And so I do think that itself has really been very effective propaganda-wise for the West um, in really killing this really large movement for self-determination um, 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 that Haitians have had. Um, you know, in a long, since 1986, you know, with the ouster of, of Duvalier. Uh, for the last question, I think this will be something to kind of internationalize it a bit um, and just kind of to talk about Haiti in general and like our current context and um, where we live, Canada, I know Dr. Pierre in the States. Um, so how do we lead um, and more significantly support an international uh, Pan-African solidarity movement? How do we fight and struggle in our homes and maintain the fight and struggle for others globally? Um, additionally, with so many struggles occurring right now or recently in Ghana, Nigeria, Senegal, Ethiopia, Somalia, Haiti, and the Americas, amongst, uh, um, amongst many other places outside of Africa, um, is the growing oppression against Black people everywhere the stimulus needed to command an international solidarity movement? Yeah, well, you know, I'm a Pan-Africanist, so I've always seen these struggles connected. I, I, you know, actually, when I think about Haiti, the first place that that's a comparison to me is Somalia, because, you know, the destruction of Somalia um, after the Somalis um, embarrassed the U.S. with uh, in the 1991, you know, took down that Black Hawk, you know, and then, um, you know, and, and you know, and killed occupation force, right? And so, so, and you know, the U.S. has never gotten over that, right? You know, we have movies, we have, you know, sorry about the curse about Somali pirates, and you know, this idea. First of all, the idea of piracy is just ridiculous, right? In terms of, you know, 
they're stealing fish off the waters. They're doing all this, and then all of, and and but they're calling the Somali the pirates, right? Not the European trawlers that are stealing fish and and taking stuff from them. But you know that's become normalized in academic discourse. You know there are books on Somali piracy when we know the original pirates were the day, the Dutch who were stealing Africans from from ships. You know in the Caribbean, right? That's where the pirates were. You know the Europeans stealing people and and doing all of that. So that's a, I've gone on a. Uh, tirade. But the point, though, is that these are very much connected. And my worry now is, you know, the entrenchment of the U.S. military throughout the African continent, right? And and my also my other worry is the Haiti is very significant as always for the U.S. and its pivot to China, which happened under Obama. Because one of the things is there's a Mole Saint Nicholas, which is an island north, you know, which is owned by Haiti, but it's north of Haiti. What the U.S. always wanted for a military base, and you know they got Guantanamo Bay, but I think they're going to have to return Guantanamo, and I think they're looking for a place to put that. And Haiti is the perfect location because you, from there you can have access, you can have the Indo-Pacific, you know, the U.S. Southern Command, which is the the command for the the the, the, the region, to to go against Venezuela, all the leftist governments in the Americas, and then to go through the Panama Canal to get to Asia. So then you start seeing the connection between AFRICOM, which is the Africa Command, which is in 54 countries right now, right? With bases and used under, under humanitarian whatever, right? Like, you know, like we're bringing aid for cholera. So what, you know, not cholera, bring aid for COVID. Why do you need a military? Why do you need military exercises for aid for COVID, right? So, so they're, they're already entrenched. And so think about the proxy wars that are gonna happen, you know, on the African continent on behalf of the US as they fight against China, because, you know, the, Empire is done, right? The U.S. is done. But let's be real, right? And so you have rising China. So you have that. And so, so, but all of this, we're gonna be, you know, it's like, you know, the African proverb: when elephants fight, it's the it's the grass that suffers. When two big elephants fight, is so we're the grass, right? And we're the people upon which these powers are gonna fight, and they're gonna use us. And I think, as in the moment, this is the moment where we need solidarity the most. I think we need to support what's going on on the African continent. I think black people are at the bottom of this wealth, you know, wealth structure. And we are set up to be the ones that are gonna suffer the most from this. And we can see it in relationship to what's happening in Haiti, Somalia, what happened in Libya, right? Um, and so, and so, and then also all the proxy stuff that's happening on the African continent, right? And these, these neo-colonial governments, these puppets that are put in to sell off all the minerals and stuff, you know, the green revolution, for example, the new green, the green new deal is about extracting more resources from the Congo, right? And, and, and then Bolivia because of lithium, right? And so, so we have to, so my thing is we need to come together and realize that this is a global struggle. You can't do it within a national framework. And it, I've never thought the nationalist framework works for us because if those of us living in settler colonial states, we don't have a stake in these states, right? And our, our, our liberation comes through linking with other, uh, other oppressed people throughout the world. And so, and I think that's what we first need to do is recognize that these, these are very similar struggles um, that we're, we're all in this position because of this modern moment of European hegemony throughout the world. And the first thing we need to do is come together and destroy it, right? <laughs> I mean, that, that's the goal for me. And so, which is, that's one of the main reasons, for example, I joined the Black Alliance for Peace because I live in the heart of empire and we need to attack empire. Those of us who live in the heart of empire in the heart of these settler colonial states need to attack these states from within, right? We have access to them. We need to talk about them and we need to tell them to leave the rest of the world alone. 
and then reach out to our brothers and sisters um, in these other places. What can I say? That, that, that was incredible. I, I was writing stuff down. I'm like, this is stuff that we need to we need to spread because I totally the sentiment about Pan-Africanism and uh, not taking this national framework, which I feel a lot of times I, I get it, but I'm also repulsed by like how neoliberal it can become that these movements for black lives and stuff like that, they, oh, yeah. they, they don't see people past themselves. What's happening in Haiti or what's happening in Sudan or what's happening in Zimbabwe or Brazil. It's like, that's off the map. And I think that that's a real disservice to people because you only see yourself. And then it's like, if we can move up in that corporate, like, diversity, inclusion, representation kind of mind frame, nothing's going to change. It's just like, and that's what I, I think a lot of people want. And the alternative that like Jamima and yourself, Caleb, that you're pushing out there by doing these kinds of initiatives, I think like keep doing what you're doing and what people have been doing. I mean, obviously the forces that, that be like we're, we're outnumbered, but it's always been that way. But I think it's about organization and keep building and bringing people in and, and putting that alternative on the table. Because I think a lot of times that people fundamentally understand that things are wrong like racism is a given like that but then when you can point to like a global system and how it works it's hard to ignore that right to be like you know you don't want to be integrated as an equal into a very shitty system right the our goal should be to surpass that we're thinking forward and that's what we need to do and that's why talking about pan-africanism talking about revolution and being quite open about it i think it's we're not asking for anything that's unreasonable for people to have dignity, self-determination, to have uh, democratic practices, however we define them, if it's through elections or if not, through direct democracy and through other ways of cooperating. None of the things that we're asking for are crazy. If it's talking about being able to have food, not being able to go to work and still not being able to feed your family or to worry about being kicked out of your house. Like, look at the continent, look at Haiti, how much Haiti had made for France and for all the other exploiters. And now for Haiti to be put in that position where people have to struggle to be able to get a meal or that food aid is a, even a thing. Like that doesn't make sense unless you can understand that system because then you'll just look at Haiti or you'll look at Haitians and say, that's the problem. And it's not how this, the, the richest colony, I think that for its size that ever exists, it could be immiserated in that way. You need to understand the system, right? And that's why I think Haiti is so important on opening the door, like the continent, right? What's going on there? Or Congo, another place. That's the second example I'll give to people. It's like, you want to learn how the world is off the rails? Like, look at what the history of Congo from the beginning to now. And it, you'll learn so much about that. And I think getting those examples out to people, because U.S. history is incredibly important for the movement and how it's done. But the people that have been most impactful, in my opinion, have those that have always stepped past and had that internationalist um, perspective, whether it's when Malcolm ends up stepping into that, that framework, right, where he no longer is just like a nationalist, he becomes an internationalist, right, who is traveling to Africa, the Black Panther Party. Um, even like Garvey, if you look at it like in that sense about talking about, even if there's about black capitalism and stuff like that, but the idea is seeing people as more than just what we are in this one place, that that's, that's something that needs to be embraced a lot more. And I think, the media projects you're all involved in is, is really central um, to doing that and that you can see the the reaction that there is to it like the what was it uh hood communists getting taken offline right, right? It's like, we worry 
worried about this stuff like because they're spreading that kind of message about that like pan-africanism and, and, and like a revolutionary alternative that people will just say oh it's just a bunch of leftists in their basement banging away on the keyboard but no people are listening they're afraid you know because that's always been it that alternative has always been kind of kind of squashed right and they hope that you don't reach past the university right that you'll just keep it on campus because that's a relatively sheltered place but if you take it out into the streets or you 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 expand your your reach then then that's trouble 